Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about this year's flu season and what you can do to protect yourself and your family. One of the most effective way to respond is to get treated early. Uh, we have effective antivirals, and if used early, it can mitigate um, the symptoms. Then we'll discuss end-of-life care with an expert in palliative medicine. Palliative care is appropriate for any patient suffering from a serious disease at any stage of the disease, regardless of the fact that they're still taking treatment or not for their main condition. And we'll learn how medical advances are allowing for intricate chest surgery to be done robotically through tiny incision. We're able to uh, do some of those same operations with incisions that are uh, about a centimeter big. All that and a selection from our healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll discuss what's involved in end-of-life care with an expert in palliative medicine. And we'll talk with a chest surgeon about the operations he performs through tiny incisions with robotic assistance. But first, an update on this year's flu season. Dr. Yana Shaw spoke with us in the fall about the need for flu vaccination. Now that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is reporting widespread flu activity throughout the United States, we invited Dr. Shaw back to talk about what's happening in central New York. Uh, Dr. Yana Shaw specializes in pediatric infectious disease. She's an associate professor of pediatrics, also of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. And I thank you for being here. Good morning, Amber. So I've heard this referred to as the earliest and most severe flu outbreak in years. Is that what you're seeing in this area? Well, uh, you know, we certainly this year have early influenza activity compared to the last year. But historically, looking at the CDC reporting, um, uh, influenza has come in early, uh, this early in the past. And uh, you may remember the 2009 pandemic influenza season that has started actually during summer. So, you know, we'll look back several years. This is not all that unusual compared to last year. This this is an early influenza season. Is it influenced by the uh, weather? Well, I, I wonder if it's more the human behavior that influences the transmission. You know, the, certainly, you know, very cold weathers alone will not help um, the virus, but it's the human behavior. Maybe people are staying indoors more. They are more likely to get together and be in a crowded conditions that will enable transmission of the virus. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, in central New York, are you seeing that more people are getting sick with flu symptoms? Um, are the flu symptoms more severe than previous years? Mm-hmm. What's, what's it like? Uh, so central New York um, has been uh, particularly hard hit with um, the flu this year. Uh, we certainly had most cases looking at the New York State Department of Health uh, data and their map. And we are also one of the first ones to sort of um, experience influenza this season. Um, so, yeah, I agree that um, our area uh, has been struggling with flu and a lot of flu. If you're hospitalized with the flu, what, does, uh, what, ha- what kind of care do you get? What does the hospital provide? 
So the care depends on uh, the patient's need. Um, depending on how ill you are when you end up in the hospital, um, the treatment can consist simply of supporting you uh, with fluids, uh, with hydrations, with IV. In patients where we suspect uh, that they did develop uh, secondary bacterial complications, you would you could get antibiotics. We tend to always treat with um, antiviral medications uh, um, in all patients who are admitted for influenza. Um, some patients require high level of care. They end up in ICU, so sometimes ventilatory support is, is required. So I guess it will really depend on um, uh, what your complications are. Okay. Um, any idea why? Is it the age of the population here? Is it the... So I think that uh, certainly we always want to know why, so we can then correct things in the future right. or uh, minimize impact. But I don't think in this particular instance we will have an answer. It's possible that Syracuse area is a hub for, you know, going east, going west. Maybe this is where people travel quite a bit. We, of course, have a large university, you know, that brings in young people and a lot of transit. So um, we, uh, I certainly have not seen any reports that would explain why central New York uh, had been uh, particularly uh, hard hit with influenza. Well, and, and when we say it's particularly hard hit, some people end up in the hospital with the flu, right? Yeah, so that's the you know biggest concern about influenza is that the range of the disease um, can um, look like just um, um, you know muscle aches, headaches, fevers with abrupt onset. But what's really concerning with influenza is the, that it can be very severe and bring people in the hospital can lead to severe complications and um, you know ICU admissions, intensive care unit admissions, and death. So it's the complications, really, that would make someone be hospitalized. Correct. So the complications, you know, occur, especially among people who have uh, underlying medical conditions, people who may have asthma, diabetes, children who are young. You know, typically we think of children less than five and especially less than two years of age as particularly high risk for complications. And then a um, um, variety of adult conditions, as I mentioned, even in, you know people who have cancer and are immunosuppressive medications, those are at high risk for severe and complicated influenza. So how do you know as um, a person who's you know maybe got some a headache and a fever, how do you know if you um, are going to develop the complications and you need to be hospitalized mm -hmm. or if you just need to sort of do the rest and fluids mm -hmm. at home, how do you tell? Yeah, so that can be hard um, uh, to tell because influenza, you know, can look like um, any other infection that starts. You know, you don't feel well, you may have fever, you may have headaches, muscle aches. But the way one should uh, sort of raise their own uh, red flag and concern is if you are not healthy in a baseline, if you are heavy, maybe you have asthma, all those conditions I mentioned earlier, you should call your provider early on and just ask them, listen, these are the symptoms I'm having. Do you think I could have flu? Because there are things you can do to protect yourself from those severe complications. 
So you mentioned, I mean, people with underlying health conditions, are pregnant women considered at high risk if they have symptoms? Yes, yeah, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, pregnant women um, are in particular risk. Um, they were at very high risk during the pandemic 2009 influ of influenza. We saw numerous deaths among pregnant women. And similarly, uh, this year, you know, 30% of um, the hospitalizations occur among uh, pregnant women. And I've also heard, like, in terms of the symptoms that um, with the flu, it, that it's like other infections, perhaps like a cold or whatever, but that it um, comes on suddenly. So, like, if you, if you can sort of pinpoint the moment you started feeling bad, that maybe that's an indicator that it's the flu. Is that, is that right? Yes. So that's what people who had flu uh, describe. You know, I feel I was hit by a brick. You know, it comes on very suddenly, severe headaches, severe mu muscle ache, uh, joint pains. People end up uh, bedridden. You know, cold is not flu in general. Uh, influenza is... Um, throwing you in bed, you will stay in bed for for an extended period of time. So for people who are lucky and don't end up in a hospital, they tend to lose quite a bit of um, time at work. So that's sort of another downside of getting ill with influenza is that you will be out of work for a while. How long does it last? So it depends on an individual. It can last up to a week and um, then you will uh, continue uh, just feeling tired and sort of having slow recovery um, and uh, regaining strength. Uh, so flu tends to wipe us out. So you may be wiped out for a week, but then also still not really back to yourself right. for a while the, after. Correct. So the convalescence alone, the sort of healing stage, can take a few weeks. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Yana Shaw. We're talking about this year's flu season, which the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is reporting as uh, having widespread flu activity throughout the United States. What does um, what is the flu like doing in the body? Does it stay in the respiratory tract, or what is it doing that's making us feel so bad? So influenza is a respiratory virus, yes, so it enters our body through our noses and throats, and it um, infects those sites. And as the immune system is coming in trying to help, it creates a storm, essentially. It creates a response, immune response, that alone um, uh, can be damaging. Um, you know, there's a fine balance between what the immune system does for us to protect us and clear infection, but also what it can do to make us even sicker. Uh, so what the flu does, it will infect that respiratory system, bring in those um, uh, cells that fight uh, fight it, uh, but what it also does, it disrupts that uh, respiratory systems and can lead to what we call secondary bacterial infection when people can end up with serious bacterial complications. Is there, maybe this is the million dollar question, but is there anything that we can do to hasten its exit from our body? Can mm -hmm. we flush it out in some way? Um, yes, yeah, so one of the most effective way to respond is to get treated early. Uh, we have effective antivirals. Um, uh, your audience might have heard of Tamiflu or Oseltamivir. It's um, um, widely available medication. It's safe. And if used early, it can mitigate um, the symptoms and protect you from ending up in the hospital. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. And obviously, you know, taking uh, time to rest, taking time to heal, lots of fluids, um, those sort of uh, grandma or 
recommendations. They are always chicken, true. Chicken noodle soup. Chicken noodle soup. And, <laughs> um, fluids, uh, water, um, electrolyte solution. Um, you know, so I would. Um, I'm hesitant to in general recommend what kind of particular fluids, as long as uh, you know you don't use soda and you don't uh, overly sweeten beverages. Teas uh, with lemon and honey um, are are always safe. Um, water to supplement uh, your fluid intake is always good. If you are doing the fluids and rest at home, um, how do you know if you have turned a corner and gotten, if you've gotten worse, do you need to be seen? Yeah, so if you if you stay home and you sort of take your time to heal and um, and um, in a couple of days you're not feeling better, your fever is not going away, um, you're feeling sicker, you should most importantly call your provider if you haven't done it earlier and ask to be seen. Okay. Now we're in the midst of this flu season. Is it too late to get a flu vaccine if people put it off this late? So it's not late. Uh, we vaccinate through March, sometimes April. It really depends on the um, uh, influenza season. So it's absolutely not late. Uh, the vaccines that we have uh, protect against three different or four different uh, virus strains. So even if you end up infected with one strain, the vaccine can still protect you against other strains. Okay, so it's not too late. If you get vaccinated now, you're protected through this season at least, right? That's correct. Um, I've read some things, though, about the flu vaccine not being very effective this season. So uh, vaccine, I'm sorry, vaccine effectiveness um, uh, depends on the type of virus that circulates during the season and depends on the virus strains that are in the vaccine. So we don't have uh, vaccine effectiveness estimates for this season yet. Oh. We are extrapolating um, the information or projecting on what it might be like from the last season. And the reason why we can do that, at least you know, guess or make educated guesses because the majority of the strains that circulate this year are similar to the one that circulated last year. It's the H3N2 strain. Um, that's the one that's been infecting most uh, um, people in the U.S. Um, based on the national data, you know, over 80% of people had this type of strain. And that's the strain that can be particularly difficult to vaccinate against because it changes so quickly. It changes during the season? It can change during the season, yes. Um, so I've heard H3N2 before. Um, if, if a person had the flu, the H3N2 flu last year or the year before, would they have protection against it this season? So they may if the strain remains similar to the one uh, last year. Um, but we know that this particular strain can change even during, um, during one season. Um, and uh, we should remember also that um, the vaccine, when it's designed and with, when the vaccine strains are recommended, those decisions are made early in the, in the um, year. So um, typically in January, CDC will decide what strains will be uh, represented in the vaccine. So, you know, between January and by the time the flu season hits, uh, the virus had time to change its appearance. So that will impact um, the vaccine effectiveness. And H3N2 is the strain that likes to do that. So it's sort of a prediction they have to make several months ahead of time so that there's time to make the vaccine and distribute it 
Right. Exactly. You know, it takes six months to make an influenza vaccine. So um, the experts, they make um, educated uh, guesses or predictions or projections, uh, whatever we want to call them. Uh, but they are not perfect um, because the nature is not perfect. Right. Well, thank you very much. This has been very informative. My guest has been Dr. Yana Shaw. She's an expert in pediatric infectious diseases. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, You might want to include palliative care in your end-of-life care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're discussing end-of-life care with Dr. Sylvia Pasnachuk, a physician who specializes in palliative medicine. I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start uh, by explaining what palliative care is. How do you describe or define palliative care? You know, that's a great question, and I think the whole field in the, the public is looking for a definition that... Um, Um, will have specific meaning. So I'll try two or three different definitions because, again, um, the term from a semantic point of view was coined by a physician up north. Um, um, His name was, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Mount, uh, Balfour Mount. He was, he's a, I'm not sure if he's still practicing, but he coined this term in the early 70s. And um, Palliative care for for the the term comes from the Latin pallium, which means a cloak, uh, something that's meant to cover something, hmm. a garment that's covering. Um, um, and again, I think you know it's it, it was a good choice at that at that time, but I think it it still creates a little confusion in the public about. Not many people know about, you know, the Latin kind of roots of this right. word. So it's just a strange word. And that creates a little, um, I would say, um, um, a strange feeling for, for patients being referred to a palliative care because they don't really know what to expect from, from, from this consult. Um, and was the cloak meant to sort of just cover up symptoms or cover up? I think up? the cloak was meant to cover the main diagnosis. So palliative care um, um, is, is, is care meant to address symptoms when no cure is um, um, or cure is no longer available. Ah, okay. So in, I think at, at the time it was a great idea, but I think somewhere along the way we lost both the medical field and the public because it's it's just not an easy to understand term. Sometimes palliative care is um, 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 used interchangeably with uh, supportive care or supportive oncology, specifically with patients with cancer. Um, 
but an, a definition in in different terms will be um, uh, a specialized medical care for people with serious illnesses. And of course, the question will be if we have cardiology, if we have oncology, if we have nephrology, why do we need another level um, for these patients? Um, in the, anth the answer stays, I think, in the fact that um, um, uh, the complexity of some of these patients are, is uh, sometimes becomes an issue um, uh, because most of them, they don't suffer from just one disease. They're very fragile. They're um, old sometimes. Um, they start losing function. And it becomes um, much more than a disease. It becomes managing decline. And I would say in two words, there will be that will be the closest definition I can come up. That's that's the closest I can come up um, for for palliative care is managing decline. Can we give proportional care to patients based on whatever the goals are now, accepting that they have a diagnosis for which we no longer have a cure or meaningful treatment. So there, perhaps there's a tumor that is inoperable or that they've done everything that they can to sort of, you know, treat it. Um, so this is more um, focused on improving the patient's quality of life rather than trying to get rid of the cancer. Absolutely. That's one of the um, um, main, um, um, I think, qualities of palliative care. Another one that usually is not addressed by traditional medicine is taking care of the caregivers, of the family members. Um, most of the time, the distress in the family and um, uh, trying to managing this um, sometimes slow decline, sometimes faster than, than, um, than expected, um, creates big-time distress um, in the family. And then um, what I'm trying to say, the traditional approach, I think, is trying to address the patient's issues with the understanding that um, everything else will have a different, like, approach. Like the family, they'll have to go seek themselves medical attention or social mm -hmm. attention, or which, again, I think palliative care connects the family uh, the patient with the family, and and we're trying. Um, for example, we're using diagnosis never that used to be recognized by the main payers, such as caregiver fatigue or caregiver burnout. Um, unfortunately, they no longer recognized, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. Sure, sure. Well, how does palliative care differ from hospice care? That's that's a great question, and I think, I think. There is no clear line. With this being said, um, I'll try to mix them in a head and see if we can pick the right one. So palliative care is appropriate for any patient suffering from a serious disease, from, say, congestive heart failure, any kind of cancer, dementia, at any stage of the disease, regardless of the fact if they're still taking treatment or not for their main condition. While hospice... By definition, it's a um, hospice is a Medicare benefit, meaning that if 
cure or treatment is no longer pursued or is no longer followed or or believed to help these patients and they want to have their care mostly at home where um, um, that's mostly the hospice philosophy then the hospice benefit kicks in and then hospice as a unified kind of payer will take care of all their needs in the house hospice is a um, um, the organization the main the the main team is made of um, 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 physician medical director sometimes I mean most of the time the nurse is the the leader of the clinical team and then there is a social worker there is a chaplain there is volunteer so it's a um, what, what we call a um, um, interdepartmental kind of group that, that, that handles each and every case. They meet weekly. There are weekly visits by the nurse. Um, it's a completely different program. So palliative care can follow at each and any given time a patient during their course, meaning that they don't have to meet any criteria for as long as they have a serious disease so you could still you could be in hospice care, but still be uh, palliative care as well. That's a good question. Hospice care is doing the palliative care. In but hospice, uh, the uh, focus is in palliation on on dealing with the symptoms because again, there is no more cure, there is no more treatment that is offered for the main disease. So the main condition is following is 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 natural course. Okay. Um, so if you're a, a patient who's receiving outpatient palliative services, um, does that necessarily mean that you don't want life-saving care, like the do not resuscitate? That's a great question. Not necessarily. It's all believed on the patient. It, it's all um, meant to follow the patient's beliefs and, and wishes. Of course, in late stages of disease, um, resuscitation by itself will not really make sense. There is less than 1% of patients that survive resuscitation in late stages of a chronic disease. Um, they malnourished, um, they extremely, and it's, it's, it's a procedure that uh, might create only discomfort to the family if they're watching it. And again, the results are not expected to be um, um, the best possible. It's it's interesting that this resuscitation was um, um, it's 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 a very hot topic right now I think in the field because again we are expected to kind of explain to the patients for why that resuscitation would probably not make sense because of the decline and the fact that it's really not going to bring a better quality of life or it's not going to change the natural course of their condition. Um, but I'm seeing patients where um, they feel abandoned if they sign a DNR order mm -hmm. or they have they had previous experiences when they felt the care was no longer the care that they expected to, to see for their uh, family members in sure. the past. And they feel, no, I still, I still want to fight. I'm not giving up. This is what I hear a lot. This is never about giving up. It's, it's a natural thing. You know, we'll never ask somebody to give up. That won't be right. Okay. Good to know. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate Dr. Sylvia Paznachuk about end-of-life care and palliative medicine. Uh, so how does a patient or their loved one know whether palliative care is right for them? 
You know, that's a good question. I don't think many people know now about this service. Um, Does the um, primary care provider, is that the person to present the idea to someone, or um, how would they learn about the I would the say they'll be the best, actually, to offer even um, um, uh, just a, a, a level of palliative care, meaning that uh, uh, primary care physicians should be trained in, um, in symptom control, and they should be able to handle um, this patient's, you know, towards um, end of life. Um, of course, the palliative care physician might come in whenever there is a hard-to-control symptom or there is a very difficult family where the uh, f uh, family care practitioner or the primary care physician, um, they, have, they, they, they encounter problems in, in, in dealing with things that are not common. And sometimes they're very difficult to treat. And every once in a while, even for symptom control, these patients end up in the hospital. Okay. All right. Um, people that are receiving palliative care, how long does that typically last? How long are they... For as long as they live, as there is no. So it could be. Yeah, as opposed to hospice, where for, for hospice, um, um, two physicians should agree that, in normal condition, if the disease runs its natural course, then the patient has probably six months or less. Um, but palliative care could be much it's, longer than it's that. It's not limited. It, okay. it can address a, a specific symptom for the duration of the symptom. It can address some uh, psychosocial distress or uh, for as long as that is there. It can become more of a um, um, uh, type of um, uh, care, you know, uh, that, that, that's kind of pointed towards symptom discomfort. And, and follows the main uh, specialties that are involved. Is there paperwork required? I mean, we've done uh, segments on HealthLink about healthcare proxies and that sort of thing. Is that required for palliative care, or is this like another medical specialty? Um, so there are two forms that we usually um, discuss with the patient. They're, they're important forms for their medical care. Um, and these are a healthcare proxy that we recommend for them to have one executed, uh, naming one of their relatives or uh, somebody they trust um, um, to make medical decisions in case they cannot make their own. Um, and then there is a MOLST form, which is um, it stands for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Therapies. Um, and um, it's um, I think this was... Um, mandated by New York State, I think in 2011, where patients with um, significant medical conditions should be informed and offered palliative care. And part of it, um, it's a way of empowering these patients to keep control over the intensity of care towards the end of life, such as resuscitation or feeding tubes or, say, IV fluids. Um, um, intubation. So, um, um, so that's something that we usually discuss with the patients. Of course, it's a, um, it's not an easy discussion because each and every patient they ha they they come with their own experiences, and we try not to send the. Most of them they feel well. You're trying to abandon me in case I need you. Then why can't I call nine one one? But that's not. 
That's not what we're talking about. It's just trying to empower them to have control in late stages over, again, would so you be willing... So there's a plan about what their right, wishes would that be. They can plan in a, in a medical kind of uh, way about would you prefer if something happens to be in a hospital or at home. And we're trying not to influence that. Of course, we are biased ourselves in the system. And there is a um, quite a degree of burnout in the system, too. And sometimes these discussions are a little biased. And we're trying to stay as neutral as we can. Well, well, thank you so much for the information. Uh, my guest has been Assistant Professor of Medicine, Dr. Sylvia Paznachuk. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, robotic chest surgery on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate has a new chest surgeon who specializes in minimally invasive and robotic thoracic surgery. So we've asked Dr. Mark Cry to talk with us about the work he does. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Amber. I appreciate it. So when I looked on your physician profile on the upstate.edu website, there's, there's lots of things listed under the diseases and conditions treated, and it wasn't just lung diseases. So um, what, what does thoracic encompass? Sure. So thoracic really encompasses a broad spectrum of diseases, uh, both benign and malignancy or cancers, uh, associated within the chest cavity. It really covers everything uh, in the chest outside of uh, open heart surgery. So there's lung, uh, there's esophagus, um, there's airway. Um, any diseases, again, benign or cancerous, we treat um, an area of the chest called the mediastinum, which kind of sits uh, beneath the breastbone um, all the way back to the spine. And there can be a lot of different um, cancers or non-cancerous lesions that show up there that we operate on, as well as uh, going down into the abdomen and uh, working on um, hiatal hernias uh, and when we have to do esophagectomies or removal of the esophagus for cancer or other conditions where we have to remove the esophagus. We have to reroute the plumbing, so to speak, and manipulate and, and form a, a new conduit either from the colon or from the stomach more commonly. Um, so it, it's a very broad spectrum and, and a wide variety of, of operations. So everything from neck to abdomen. Anything Pretty much. Wrong? Yeah, okay. exactly. So um, let's talk about robotic surgery and how it's used mm. in, in this field. Sure. So uh, robotic surgery is a, a relatively new and cutting-edge technology. It's been around for... Uh, Around 2000 is when the first cases of the first robotic surgery uh, that, as we know it today, the initial robots were uh, utilized back in even as early as the 80s. Um, they were kind of developed um, through the Department of Defense to try and with the mindset of having uh, the ability to operate on astronauts when they're mm -hmm. in space. So the surgeon could be on Earth on, 
on the ground and, and need be. And it didn't really pan out that way. But um, as with a lot of things, they're able to use the technology from the Department of Defense and apply it towards the civilian life. And so um, it's really uh, developed and, and blossoming, especially in the field of thoracic surgery, where um, a long time ago, the well, even today, but more frequently, um, the incisions that we would have to make involved a big, uh, what's called thoracotomy, or a, a incision several inches long uh, along the rib space, and you'd have to open and spread the ribs, and it caused a lot of pain and discomfort. And um, and the recovery from that is substantial too, Substantially right? longer, you know, weeks to months, um, whereas now... We're able to uh, do some of those same operations with incisions that are uh, about a centimeter big, about four incisions that are about a centimeter big and one that's a little bit bigger, and do the same type of operations. We, you know, we still do have to use a bigger incision sometimes for certain uh, operations, but uh, a vast majority of them are now more minimally invasive. And the word robotic, I mean, just so people don't have a vision of a robot doing sure. the surgery, um, these it's just a tech... A t- tool, sort it, of. It, it is, yeah. So it's a it's a platform where um, it's uh, uh, where instruments uh, ports are inserted, uh, similar to our, our VATS procedures or video assisted thoracoscopic procedures. A lot of people know it uh, comparable to like a laparoscopic gallbladder removal or something along those lines. Uh, and, th- that, and that's been around for a while. That's right. been around for a long time, exactly. Um, and so VATS was really adopted and, and became mainstream in the thoracic field uh, in the 90s. And so, uh, and it's continued to be utilized today. Although when you look at worldwide, a vast majority of the operations on the in, for lung surgery especially are still done open. And so it still hasn't caught on everywhere. Um, but these smaller incisions really speed the ability to recover, uh, to get out of the hospital sooner, um, and to uh, really get back to uh, normal life, so to speak, um, much quicker than uh, the big open incisions. Now, like from a technical standpoint, from the surgeon's point of view, is it a more difficult surgery when it's you know laparoscopic or robotic versus open? It, it can be more technically challenging. Um, and that's the difficult, and that's the one of the big differences between VATS and robotic is um, because with a, a VATS or a thoracoscopic approach, you're looking at a screen and it's in two dimensions, and the instruments are uh, on long sticks, so to speak, with some you know type of grasping device or cutting device at the end, and so uh, there is a lot more technical. Um, challenges from that standpoint doing it through those small incisions with um, you know you kind of have to train your brain and how your hands have to move in order to get things done whereas robotically um, the visualization is three-dimensional so it's kind of the difference between when you go to the movies watching a regular movie and watching a 3d movie Uh, you can see the the depth and depth perception is, is drastically different uh, robotically versus uh, bats. The magnification is improved, so the optics are improved, so you can see better. better. And the the instruments are wristed, so they have the seven degrees of motion that our upper extremities do. Uh, And so the the things we're able to do robotically mimic more what you can do for an open operation. And so it really has expanded the types of procedures and the complexity of the procedures that we can do minimally invasively versus what a majority of people would be able to do thoracoscopically. Now, you know, the world-renowned experts in the field of VATS can probably do anything, but it's 
not everyone can see the world-renowned expert in, in VATS. And so um, robotic surgery allows us to really push the envelope into the complexity of things that we can do, whereas um, even still today, people who don't do robotic surgery would be more apt to do that as an open thoracotomy operation. Now, when you're doing it robotically, does it feel like a video game? Um, it, I guess uh, all those uh, hours I wasted in my early, <laughs> I used in my earlier years to uh, uh, play video games were, were were not a complete loss. Because um, you're, you're you've got uh, the hand. You are. So you're sitting at a console away from the patient, and that's one of the things that. Um, especially some of the older surgeons have a tough time doing because you're not right there at the patient. The, the robot is on a platform that's brought in, the arms are docked and the instruments are inserted in there. And then the surgeon actually sits uh, a few feet away from the patient at a console. And so you're using the controls and visualizing through excellent visualization, sometimes even better than you can get with a big open operation because you're right there close up um, and using the controls. And so, um, you know, we don't take it lightly like it's a video game, but there is um, some of that hand-eye coordination that, um, you know, you, you develop. Uh, if right. You were, no, there's you definitely know, a finesse to it. If, the, oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. <laughs> so now what is the typical type of um, thoracic surgery that you would do robotically? Um, a lot of what I do, what, uh, what I do here at Upstate is uh, robotic lung surgery. So um, the gold standard for lung cancer is a lobectomy. Uh, which is uh, removal of one of the lobes of the lung. Um, on the right side, you have three lobes, and on the left side, you have two lobes. And so if you have a cancerous lesion in one of those lobes, the gold standard is to remove that whole lobe. The whole lobe. The whole lobe. Um, what we're finding now is that smaller cancers that are further out in the lung towards the periphery maybe don't need the whole lobe to have as good of a cancer operation, and they can have what's called a segment. So each one of those lobes is made up of an individual segment, which has its own artery and vein and airway. And so if we can go in and divide those artery, vein, and airway and remove that segment with our special staplers, they get just about as good of a cancer operation, and also you're able to spare some of their lung function. And that's uh, robotic surgery has really helped us be able to develop that and implement that more often because it's because you're having to dissect out and divide even smaller vessels and airways, it becomes more challenging. Uh, can still be done thoracoscopically. It can be done open, but uh, it, it, the robot really is suited to do that because of the very precise and fine dissection that you, you utilize. Neat. Um, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate thora thoracic surgeon, Dr. Mark Cry, about minimally invasive robotic chest surgery. Mm -hmm. So th the lungs are considered a solid organ, right? Correct. So um, are they full of air like a balloon? Like when you cut into them, do they deflate? It's or more what? like a sponge. More like They're a kind sponge. of like a wet sponge. And so it's um, the uh, how we operate when we operate on the lungs... Uh, the breathing tube that is put in by anesthesia when the patient goes to sleep, it's a special breathing tube. It actually has two lumens. And so we're able to collapse the lung we're working on and also keep inflating and breathing through the, through the other. other lung. Oh. And so by collapsing that lung down, it makes it easier to work with, uh, easier to dissect and staple and those kind of things. And then at the end of the operation, breathe in both lungs and, and expand the lung that we were working on. And it comes right back to comes the right back up. So um, you mentioned the the tiny incisions. If you're going to mm -hmm. take out a lobe, the lobe's pretty. A lobe of a lung is pretty big. It, How does it, it fit out? It is. So that's why the fifth incision tends to be a little bit bigger, just mm. 
solely to remove it. And um, that comes along with, you know, when we start thinking about when, when people first start doing robotic surgery, they try and limit the size of the tumor that they would do through a minimally invasive sure. approach. And as you get more facile in it, you can kind of push that envelope. But, you know, it comes down to the physics of you have to get the tumor out of the chest and the only way is through that incision. So um, that that's kind of where the the big issue comes with having to enlarge one of those, which is uh, sometimes frustrating because you do this great operation through all these small incisions and then you have to make one uh, a little bit bigger. And uh, But people do really well with it. But still way smaller than what you still would Still way smaller than what you would yeah. with a thoracotomy, absolutely. So which patients, well, which patients are candidates for robotic? It kind of depends on the tumor size. It, right? it does. So it depends on the tumor size, um, the location of the tumor. So tumors that are... Uh, closer towards the hilum or where the blood vessels start and where they come out of the heart and enter into the lung. Um, Those tend to be a little bit higher risk of um, things like bleeding and complications. Uh, But again, the more experience you have robotically, the more likely you are to try doing those through a robotic approach, at least to start. And if you have to convert to an open approach, that's perfectly okay. You want to make sure you're doing a good cancer operation and doing a good safe operation. As long as you can do those two principles through a minimally invasive approach, fantastic. That's the way we do it. If either one of those two principles risk being compromised, then you do an open incision and and make a bigger uh, incision. But um, I think that's one of the big benefits of the robot is those types of operations are... Uh, people have been less likely to want to do thoracoscopically. Bigger tumors, more centrally located, uh, whereas now, um, you know, with the robotic approach, we're able to really kind of push that envelope. And everybody on the team is is skilled in doing either. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what about outcomes in terms of comparing the opens with the robotics? So the the good thing is that... uh, when you look at the cancer data, and because robotic uh, thoracic surgery is still relatively new and in its infancy, we don't have the long-term 10 and 20-year data that we do with uh, some of the other approaches. But um, what we see in uh, at least the data we have now shows that it's equivalent from a cancer operation standpoint to the big open operations. The big benefit we find is that patients get out of the hospital substantially sooner, talking days sooner, uh, they need their chest tube less, um, less frequent or you know shorter duration of chest tube. Uh, their post-operative pain is substantially improved. They return to their normal activities sooner, and less blood loss. So all very key, all positive aspects to behaviors. you know a good operation. So you went to medical school here at Upstate, and then you did eight years of general and thoracic surgery in Allegheny General Hospital in Pennsylvania. Correct. Um, how did you know you wanted to become a surgeon, and how did you choose thoracic surgery? Um, you know, I, I wasn't one of these people who was you know born and knew from day one that I wanted to be a surgeon. I actually, uh, when I uh, went to med school, uh, I thought for sure I was not going to be a surgeon. And I remember starting my surgery rotation saying, I am absolutely not going to be a surgeon. I just want to get through these eight weeks and everything. And then the more I did it, the more I just, I was really drawn to it. You know, the ability to um, 
interact and intervene on somebody and and do something that can fix them right then and there. And it's not um, something where they're getting a medication and you have to see if it works. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. This is the ability to really intervene right then and there with your hands, be able to do something and and fix people or potentially cure people. And that really just hit home with me. And um, from a thoracic standpoint, it was, uh, you know, during my training, I, I I was able to scrub in on a few cases early on in my first year, and it really just, there's something about it that gravitated uh, me towards it, working in the chest and everything, and um, as I'm sure most people can attest to, they, they have some family members or close friends with who've experienced lung cancer, and, and uh, you know, my grandfather and my mother both uh, suffered from lung cancer, and so that really kind of hit home with me to be able to kind of try and help cure it or, you know, eradicate what we can. Wow, interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate well, thank being you here. for uh, thank you for having me, Amber. I really appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Mark Cry, a thoracic surgeon at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ray McManus has published three books of poetry, including Red Dirt Jesus and Driving Through the Country Before You Are Born. He sent us two poems that give us a perspective on male birth control. Here is There is a Risk of Swelling, Bruising, and Tenderness. The pamphlets say safe, say easy, say most men, say normal, typical, and often, and with ease, the way print fingers the crease but stays out of the fold, fonts with no stake, baseless men in toothy pictures, comfortable with their vasectomies, women smiling, They say non-invasive, they say minimal, blonde captions, sedation, prescriptions, and weekend recovery, in that order. The doctor will like the word easy and say it as if he knows I like it. No sentence, just a three-day weekend and ice. And this is his waiting room, no place for the quiet, and the television, the commercials we stare at, the home improvement we seek. Let's do this. Let's ignore the power of doing. I can be the wind that pushes back the curtain and falls to the side of the bed. I can say the end, and you can say thank you. And when the curtain falls into place, only a part of me goes and doesn't come back, a small part. He followed that poem with this one called Post Op. We're riding lighter on the way back, You're driving and telling me the dream you had the night before. I ask if I can smoke and then you die. It's a horrible dream. I should ask if that's what weighs on you the most. But I do that thing where I try to say that what you feel, I feel. And then somehow it comes back to me. We ride the rest of the way home holding hands in silence toward a dark horizon. Your dreams in your lap, the numbness in mine.
has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss lung cancer treatment options. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.